would seek to serve. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, brother. All right. Yes, thank you, Neil. I appreciate that. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I'm becoming much more sensitive to, something we should have known all along, uh, those of you who know Paul Miller, we're doing that as a Wednesday night study, one of Paul's books, The J-Curve. Paul, some years ago, wrote a book called A Praying Life. Well, he's in the process of uh, soon, by the end of the year, I think, or the first of next year, we'll be releasing a book called A Praying Church. And uh, forgive me if I've already mentioned this, but one of the, the real foundational premise of the book, the thesis of the book, is that churches should be spending more time in prayer together. That should be obvious. But what's really fascinating is that he brings out the fact that in the early days of the temple, the Jewish temple, uh, you remember Jesus said, my place shall be a house of what? A house of prayer. And the emphasis there was people understood as Jewish people that the temple was for a place of prayer. And so they would go and they would hear the word of God read, but briefly. And then their balance of their time, the majority of their time was spent in prayer. And somewhere along the way, Paul argues we've lost that. And uh, started around the enlightenment period. And uh, not that the word of God is not central. It certainly is. Uh, but we really have lost in some ways the necessity of prayer. And so we're trying to incorporate that more in our, in our services. And, and hopefully you'll be seeing more of that uh, as very, very critical. Okay. So again, thank you, Neil. We appreciate that very much. All right, well, you'll remember if you were able to watch last week, uh, we had the interruption from the snow. Kind of felt like I blew that call. Uh, I think we could have at least had the early service maybe, but that's okay. That kind of thing happens. But we were thankfully able to come in, Christy and I, and we recorded the message for you. Hopefully you got a chance to watch it. looks like quite a few of you were able to do that. If you did do that, you know that I, I paused the study in Matthew to deal with the subject at a request of Pastor John MacArthur at a Grace Community Church in California uh, to deal with the subject of biblical sexuality and uh, biblical marriage. And that came as a result of a law that was passed. And again, if you haven't heard this, just reiterating it for those of you who have not, uh, was passed on January the 8th, uh, outlawing, basically. And that's a very uh, Difficult word to use, but that really is what it is for counselors to counsel people who are uh, of um, gender identity uh, crisis to come out of that and come back to God's biblical mandate. In fact, let me just read to you what it says. This is from the Daily Wire. I quoted this last week, but this is what they wrote. A quote, outlaw is what they're calling it, conversion therapies. And that is psychological treatments intended to retrain same-sex attracted people to prefer the opposite sex and individuals who believe they're transgender to embrace their biological sex. Basically, the law known as C4 has outlawed that. And so it is punishable up to five years in prison uh, now. And so Pastor MacArthur was calling on uh, believers, pastors across the country to preach with our brothers in Canada who literally are at threat of their um, liberties uh, and the proclamation of the word. Uh, I felt it right to stand with them and, uh, and preach that as a foundational message. And that's just what we did last time, you'll remember. Um, so the emphasis, though, and this was brought out in the article about the law, that uh, even though the law is specifically dealing with Christian counseling, it's broad enough to deal with pastors uh, because pastors like myself do a lot of Christian counseling. And uh, this subject is coming up more and more and more. 
And so it's a very hot button, a hot topic. Uh, in fact, I was just talking to somebody earlier this week who uh, is a Christian counselor or uh, knows Christian counselors and was saying, you know, you think about just from the Christian counselor's perspective, uh, the years and, and life spent in study, uh, the money that's spent, uh, just Virginia alone, and some of you know this but may not, uh, Virginia alone requires 4,000 hours of actual time in counseling, uh, either under a lead, uh, another facilitator manager or of, of your own uh, ability in counseling before you can be licensed in the state. And so that's a tremendous amount of hours. When I was in school, it was 2,000. Now Virginia's changed it to 4,000. And so uh, literally these people could lose their livelihood because when you're threatened with uh, legal uh, situations like that with law, uh, it has a way of keeping people from speaking up. And, uh, and that's just the way we are. And so you can imagine the difficulty and, and for many pastors uh, to speak on the subject, which is Satan's goal, right? Satan doesn't want people teaching the truth uh, because the truth sets people free, uh, spiritually speaking and even literally. But when I heard about Pastor MacArthur's, as much as I respect him, his, uh, his request, I thought it was right. I felt like it was something that needs to be done, and so I, I set out to do that last week. And my emphasis was not to create problems. You know, my heart well enough, I hope to know that that's not my desire. Uh, it's not even something I really want to have to deal with, honestly. I'd love to teach some other things, but uh, this was a big issue. Um, mainly for me, and I just have to say it this way, I am so concerned about the, the eternal ramifications uh, from it. I just cannot stand anyone, whether it's this subject or any other subject of a person not coming fully to Christ and entering into the gates of hell for eternity. I just, I just can't imagine that. And so all of that's reason enough for me and I hope for you to, to preach on the subject, whether you're here this morning or you're listening online. And by the way, welcome. We're glad that you're joining us. Um, it is my deep conviction as your pastor to preach truth uh, it is my ordained responsibility. It is my mandate from God, and I'm going to read that to you from his word here in just a second, to teach scripture so that not only do you have biblical understanding of whatever subject, but that you are also well understanding the ramifications of sin and everything that I just mentioned. In fact, Paul said to Timothy, you remember this from just a couple of weeks ago in 2 Timothy 2, as Paul is closing out his letter giving his final words to young Timothy as Paul knows he's going to be uh, leaving this world. His life is about to be over as he will go to his beheading. Uh, he's, I'm sure, just thinking about what he can say to this young man who is his young tutor, uh, his, ment his, um, his young student. And he says this, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, I solemnly charge you. Now that word charge uh, and solemnly is emphasized. You don't see solemnly in some of the other translations, but in the New American Standard, you certainly do. In the Greek, it is a forceful order. It's not a suggestion from Paul. Paul, in his apostleship, is saying, Timothy, you are to do this. This is a commandment to you to do this as the authority over you. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, listen to how he refers to Christ who is to judge the living and the dead. Paul makes very clear there's a judgment that's coming. And by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. There's your mandate, Timothy. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. 
This to me is a little out of season, but we're commanded to do what God tells us to do. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, verse 5, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And I want you to see specifically where Paul says to him to reprove and to rebuke, just so you're clear on that. The fulfilling of his ministry would be to refute error and misconduct um, according to how God lays it out. And so, Timothy, he's saying your mandate from God is to proclaim truth so that people walk in the ways of the Lord. Even if that means to rebuke, which is to bring the erring person, if you will, to repentance so that they see the error of their ways. And uh, this, is, this is being lost today. As Paul said, it would come. People will turn aside from all that. They'll just want teachers who will just give them what they want to hear. But this is what you're to do so that the person will be rescued. And even to the church in Ephesus, chapter 5, verse 11, Paul says to them, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. So we're not to cower from them. We're not to pretend like they don't exist. We're to deal with them in a loving, gracious way. To the church in Thessalonica, chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians, Paul says to the elders there, we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. I love that phrase. Those of you who are parents understand that well, don't you? You know the exhortation that comes from a parent. No matter what the subject is, the, the longing of your heart is to see your children walk in a way that you know is right. And so Paul says, even in a spiritual sense, as a father would his own children, do this so that you will walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. In other words, preach and teach so you, the church, will walk in a way that God would have you to, to live. And so that is the call of the faithful, faithful preacher. That's what I hear scripture saying, to encourage the flock, but we encourage and we also correct. Uh, meaning, again, that condemnation is not our goal, and that's often what's related through especially even the word Baptist. Uh, more and more churches are moving away from the term Baptist because of the the idea and the, the philosophy that Baptists are just full of condemnation. And I hope people don't get that from us. Uh, we just want people to see the truth uh, like all of us need to see the truth, that we're all sinners and we all need to be uh, cleansed of, of sin if we're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And we do that by surrendering our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ who paid the price for us. It has set us free. And if you wanted a, a, an earthly picture in my mind, I, I hear God over and over again uh, using kind of an illustration of throwing a lifeline. His word to us is a lifeline. It's, it's as if you're holding the donut on the side of the ship and, and it says SOS on the side of it. Maybe it says SOS heaven or something. I don't know. It's got a rope on it and God is just constantly throwing the lifeline out to us. Look, here's the deal. You're dying. You're drowning. You're, you're on your way to hell. Grab the rope. Grab the rope, grab the, the donut, grab the thing that I can pull you in and save your soul. And that's really what God's word is all about. Okay, so last week, as I said, I tried to just lay the foundation for the subject. And I did that by teaching us what, or going back and reminding us about what God says about homosexuality. 
what he says about same attraction, what he says about his plan for marriage, which was very clear. It's between one man and one woman. We're going to see that again, but I want to touch on that even more specifically this morning. Uh, We looked at several verses from Genesis. We looked at Leviticus, talked about that. We talked about the book of Romans. We talked about the gospel of Matthew. And uh, there are other places in Scripture even that gives us evidences of the same truth, that marriage is to be between a man and a woman. Now, honestly, I thought about stopping there uh, because, again, I I don't want to have to teach on subjects like this, um, but it's necessary. Um, And so I thought today and next Sunday and perhaps even the next one, depending on how far we get, I want to deal with some of the arguments specifically that the gay community uses to justify their position that come from Scripture. Okay, They're using arguments to justify their design and their purpose, what they believe is right, and I'm saying this in a loving way, uh, to uh, live the way that they live. And, and we have to go to God's Word to make sure we're clear about what God is actually saying and not missing anything. And so... This is part two of God's design for all of that, sexual, uh, human sexuality and marriage. So let's stand this morning. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to see our first argument from right here. But let's just stand in honor of the word of the Lord as we often do. I want to pick up in verse 18. Um, I may have had a little bit more there for you earlier, but we're going to pick up 18. Just to set the stage, um, this is the second of the telling of the creation account. God has done this in chapter 1, but now he's gone through all the creation of all that we know, and he's now about to tell us again about the creation of man. And so he says in verse 18, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, amen. You may be seated. Now, Parents, please understand that my, my goal is to be sensitive here. I don't want to say things uh, that are being too specific um, for your little children's ears, but um, I'll try to be as general as I possibly can so that we don't uh, violate anything of your heart. As I mentioned just a second ago, it's right from this text even early on in Genesis, that the gay community gets some of their first arguments. And here's, here's the first one I want to deal with. And we're not going to be able to deal with all of them, but uh, not today or the next time, but particularly some of the most important ones. They say that even though Genesis talks about the creation of man and woman, that doesn't mean two consenting adults of the same sex can't accomplish the same goal. Okay, that's the argument. Two people of the same sex can't accomplish or there's no reason why they can't accomplish the same goal 
right here from Genesis chapter 2. Now, again, if you were listening last week, you know that I made reference to Kevin DeYoung's book on what God really teaches about uh, human uh, sexu- uh, homosexuality. And so I want to do that again. I want to use a lot of his information uh, to make the point because I think Kevin has done a marvelous job in his research and in his study. And so here's what he said concerning this, who, by the way, is not obviously in favor of same-sex relationships. In recent years, some have questioned whether this straightforward reading of the text, and he's talking about Genesis 2, is really all that straightforward. Eve, some argue, was not a complement to Adam as much as a basic companion. The problem she remedied was aloneness, not incompleteness. And doesn't the text indicate that the woman, as opposed to the animals, was suitable for the man because she was like the man, not because she was different? Perhaps the language of one flesh does not depend on any particular sex act or any sex act at all. Why make so much of some supposed sexual fittedness when Genesis 2 nowhere mentions procreation? To be sure, the argument goes, Genesis uses the example of a man and a woman forming the covenant bond of marriage, but why can't this illustrate what is normal rather than prescribe what is normative? The union of two men and two women can demonstrate the same leaving and cleaving and the same intimate sharing of all things that we see from Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. And it is true, Kevin will go on to say, that God does use the same phrasing of bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh in other passages of Scripture. And you can study that for yourself. You see that in Genesis 29, verses, uh, verse 14, when Laban told Jacob the same thing, using literally the same phrase, but in a different context, which is very important to understand. Uh, the tribes of Israel in 2 Samuel 5 told David the same thing, we are your bone and flesh. And so you can begin to see that as people begin to put pieces of Scripture together, uh, they take things out of context and they use them to come up with the same kind of meaning, which you cannot do, which is why we always do our best to go verse by verse and understand the context as clearly as we can. I think it is very obvious that sacred Scripture makes it very clear that Eve was, in fact, very different from Adam. It's very, very much stretching of the text to say that that was not the case. And she was different, first of all, in that God created her from Adam. That was unique. That's not the same way that he created Adam. The text clearly tells us that he took one of Adam's ribs and formed the woman. That was unique to anything else he had done in the created order. And so she was very similar to him, obviously, as a human being, but she was very different from being a man. And again, that's very important because if God wanted Adam to have just someone to be a companion, then he could have easily just said, there's another man for you, Adam. There's another created being. But what God did and left for us is a uniqueness of how he created the woman. So, again, the argument really, in my opinion, according to the text, doesn't hold water when it comes to that. Uh, We also know that Eve's difference was very physical. That's pretty obvious to anyone that has eyes at all, meaning her body literally was made different from Adam, not only to complement Adam, and this becomes the point now, of what marriage is all about, but for the specific purpose of procreation, or I should say for one of the purposes of marriage, which is again what Genesis 2, 24 very specifically says. 
God through Moses will say, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now there is a spiritual dynamic to all that. I'll talk about in just a minute. But really here the word one flesh is a meaning that is to describe united in a way that is similar to being one person specifically to come together in the oneness that would produce offspring. That's what the phraseology means, meaning another male could not complement Adam in that way and it couldn't happen with Eve with another female. It would not fit the picture in God's design that he did for marriage. And so some, though, would argue, well, procreation then is a requirement for marriage. In other words, why can't we share our oneness even if no children come from it? That's the argument, the secondary argument. Why do children have to be a part of all this? Well, I think we've already answered that, really, because by God's design, the covenant between a man and woman in marriage is a covenant and I know you'll understand what I mean by this, as long as everything works, and I'm saying that because we live in a sinful fallen world where sometimes our bodies are not able to do that for whatever reason, due to age or health issues or something. But originally by God's design, and you see this before the fall because the fall didn't occur until Genesis chapter 3, God's design was for man and woman to come together in one flesh to produce children. That was the purpose. By its very point, marriage is in its fundamental design a place, yes, for companionship and praise the Lord for that. Those of you who are happily married and notice the, the, uh, the introductory thought there, happily married. And if you're not, you should be anyway because God has given to you a companion. But specifically beyond that, God has in his original design given you a companion for the purpose of procreation. In its simplest terms, marriage is the place where other people come from, right? Pretty simple. Now, by default, that would simply mean that two people of the same sex cannot join in this kind of oneness like a man and a woman can, unless, as science is doing, and I read this, I read an article to you last week about genetic manipula uh, manipulation or some kind of physical manipulation, okay? The article even went on to say, if you remember, it was from uh, Healthline or Health Watch or something. I don't remember the article uh, where I got it, but um, said that uh, we have to redefine what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, okay? Well, it becomes possible if you start doing that, but in God's original design, that was not the case. Now, if we wanted to add to all of that, marriage between a man and a woman is only the only relationship that fix, fits the union. This is the spiritual part between Christ and the church. There's a very clear uh, proclamation from God, instruction from God, a very clear description of the spiritual dynamic of a relationship between a man and woman in the context of marriage, which is why Paul will say in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives. Well, we could stop right there and we could say, wonderful, that sounds like a great relationship. That's a good mandate. Husbands, love your wives. But he qualifies it, not just so husbands will love their wives, which should be a no-brainer, but he says, as Christ has also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now he creates this to be a very clearly uh, spiritual dynamic in it all. 
Even further, he says, so that Jesus, or he in the text, might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands, now referring back to this spiritual picture, ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. There's the oneness there. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Here you go. Just as Christ also does the church, because we are, get this, members of his body. What's he saying? He's saying that the physical picture of the oneness of flesh, yes, is for the procreation of new people, but you're also giving a spiritual picture of Christ and his relationship to his church, which you and I, beloved, can in no way explain in our human senses. We have to just simply understand that in God's design for the church, he created us as a reference point for us to understand what this union in him is all about. We are mystically, spiritually one with Christ as his church. That's why he refers to us as the bride. Isn't it interesting that he uses the feminine pronoun? It's purposeful on God's part because the picture of marriage, and I've used this as a a illustration with um, young couples getting married, saying, look, you're standing in the presence of witnesses, yes, to show them your love for one another and their love for you, but the real picture here is your display of Christ's love for his church. That's what marriage really is designed to be, to bring people into the world, to have companionship, but to say to the world, look, there is a far bigger picture than what you're seeing right here. And that bigger picture is that there is a God who created, who loves you, and he wants you to be one with him. And so it's critically important that we understand it. Simply putting, the differences between male and female show that oneness. Two similar sexes cannot show that biblical picture. It is impossible. And... If you notice, the first days, and this just kind of supports all of this thought, if you go back to the first few days of creation, notice the complementary purpose that God does or uses in the way he creates the rest of the world, or even before he gets to man and woman. It's it's like God is building to a crescendo because he first creates the sun and the moon. Now watch this. Both very similar but yet very uniquely different, right? You know that. That's a no-brainer. You look into the heavens and you say, wow, I can't look at the sun. It's bright. Oh, I love the warmth, especially on days like we've had. It's awesome. Past few nights, I don't know if you've noticed, the moon is just beautiful. The snow glistens off of it. It's just gorgeous. Two planetary things, but yet very different in their function. Same thing with morning and evening. You may have a choice over one that you like better than another, but you understand them to be a day, but yet they're fundamentally and functionally different. Day and night, we've already mentioned that, sea and dry land, they both complement one another perfectly, but they're both distinct from each other. Plants and animals, living things, 
but yet still very different. And then the crescendo is God says, now you see all of that? Watch this. Boom, here's man. Boom, here's woman. They display my glory like nothing else in my creation can. The uniqueness, but difference that can only be done that way. Again, of which same-sex marriage cannot give the picture of. It's just absolutely impossible. Making, the argument would have to go this way, that God evidently used the wrong narrative if he wanted to describe what we're seeing in our culture today. In other words, Genesis 2 and Genesis 1 were the wrong story for God to pick if he wanted to say that uh, same-sex attraction and homosexuality is okay with him. So that's one of the first arguments. And we could go into much more depth than that, but we're not. Let's go to the second one. This comes from something that's very obvious to most of us who have studied Scripture over the years. It's the argument from Sodom and Gomorrah. The argument basically says, from the proponents of gay marriage, is that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because the people rejected him, not because of any other reason. It wasn't because of homosexuality. Now, because, and I'm saying this lovingly, Satan will always twist the truth of God to try to convince us of things. It is true to their credit that in Genesis 13, 13, God does say the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Okay? There's no specific reference there to homosexuality. But we have to keep reading. We have to get the whole picture. And so we go on to Genesis 18 now. Um, if you don't know the story, this is the time when uh, the Lord Jesus and what's called a, either a Christophany or some people would say a theophany. A Christophany is a an Old Testament appearance of Christ before his time physically on earth. A theophany is simply an appearance of God, uh, which you could use either one of them in this case. But this particularly was, in my opinion, Jesus himself coming with two angels because of two reasons. He's coming to tell Abraham, I'm about to give you a message that's going to change your life forever, which will be you will become the father of a nation. That's going to be the institution, the beginning parts of the covenant with Abraham and Sarah, and saying this time next year, you're going to have a child. You remember Sarah laughs. She says, I'm old. I'm well past childbearing years. And God says, okay, this is still going to happen. And he chastens her with it. Uh, the second part of the story is though, he says, I've come to hear, uh, to see for myself the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah and do something about it. And so we pick up our reading there in chapter 18 and verse 20. And the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. Okay, still nothing specific. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I'll know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? You can kind of see Abraham being a little sheepish here. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Now the beauty of that is, and we have to pause just for a second, the beauty of that is Abraham knew in his own heart God is a just God. And that's important. 
The world cannot say of the true God that he is not a just God. He is not a God who just delights in punishing the wicked for the sake of punishing them. God always has just reason, but he also looks for ways to grace people and to to honor them. And so Abraham knows this. And so pick up at verse 26. So the Lord said, if I find Sodom in Sodom, 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. Isn't that awesome? What a beautiful picture of God's grace. Now, we don't know how many people were in Sodom and Gomorrah. Specifically, he's just talking about Sodom right now. But he said, if I find 50 people, I'll spare the entire city. Beautiful. Abraham replied, Now, behold, I venture to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. In other words, Abraham's trying to notch him down a little bit, right? In verse 29, and he spoke to him again and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of 40. And then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. And then he said, oh, my Lord. Don't be angry with me. I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. Now, I don't know this for sure, but I have a feeling, well, I do know this part. Abraham obviously knew the city was wicked or he wouldn't have gone through that with the Lord. He wouldn't have in his own mind taken his own life in his hands to try to bring the Lord down in his righteous judgment. So Abraham knew that something was happening. And my suspicion is Abraham knew that his nephew Lot was there. And probably about 10 people were going to fit the number of people that he was concerned about. Don't know that for sure, but it seems to fit the text a little bit. Anyway, that's a side point. But still... At this point, the point really is in the argument that still nothing is said about the sin of homosexuality. So let's keep reading. Let's go to Genesis 19 now. Verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, in the evening, as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we'll spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now still, again, notice, nothing specific about homosexuality, but by the reaction of Lot to these strangers, Lot also knew something was wrong in Sodom, right? He was not going to let them stay outside of any protective place that he, if he could have anything to do with it. And so he urges them to come inside. So let's keep reading. Verse four, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom surrounded the house. Now watch this, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. Okay. You got that? That's important. And they called the lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. 
But Lot went out to them at the doorway, and you can see the desperate attempt on Lot's part, which is not right, but he knows enough to know he's got to do something here, even though it's not right. He goes out to the doorway, he shuts the door behind him, and he says, please, my brothers, listen, do not act wickedly. Important point. Now, behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with a man. Please let me bring them out to you. There's the problem Lot had. And do to them whatever you like, an horrific thing. But I think it's important to understand that Lot is emphasizing the gross sin of homosexuality to the point where he's willing to offer his own precious daughters in exchange for protecting these people from committing such an atrocity. But they said, stand aside, verse 9, furthermore, this one came in as an alien talking about Lot. You're not, around, you're not from around these parts. And already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Now again, I reference you back to verse 4. The Lord said, all the men and all the people from every quarter. That's simply a way to reference the whole city. It's similar to how you and I would say, oh, we got an ant in the honey jar. It's got to all be thrown out. Now, you know, one little tiny ant probably didn't destroy everything in the honey. But you know, too, that there's just some things that you got to deal with in its entirety. But the Lord here says all. But even if you take all to not mean all, the emphasis still is whatever other wickedness was going on in the city, the mass of them, at least according to God, were involved in the sin of homosexuality which was enough for God to include them in his reason for destroying the city. I think we could easily say if he was not going to judge them, why would the Lord even bring it up at all? Why is it necessary to even bring up this particular subject in the narrative at all? I'm talking about the subject of homosexuality. I mean, there's nothing mentioned about marriages between husbands and wives not saying that they were perfect in their relationship or they even had anything to do with the Lord, but it does kind of presuppose the fact that if homosexual relationships were okay in the eyes of the Lord and something he blesses, then why isn't he treating that relationship the same as he does everything else when it comes to marriage? I think it's pretty clear. The specific would be, where is God's judgment on any other relationship? Well, in this context, in this Subject of Genesis, which is where one of the arguments for the gay community comes out, it's not there. God very uniquely brings this out to the surface. Very clearly saying that if homosexuality was not the main reason for God's judgment, then the non-homosexual people were judged, right? They were judged. But evidently, because it's so clear to us that God brought out the subject of homosexuality, the people who were not involved in homosexuality were also judged, perhaps as a result of this very same thing and many other sins. In other words, God looks at the city. He says the entire city's wicked. 
Abraham tries to whittle him down and say, look, there got to be some righteous people in it. The Lord says, look, even if I find 10, I won't destroy it. So what's God saying to him? I'm telling you, Abraham, the city in its entirety is wicked. We come to the narrative further and we're told that one of the main emphasis of the wickedness is this issue of homosexuality. And we know that because indeed the whole city was destroyed. Notice Genesis 19.23. Only Lot and his wife and immediate family escape, but really even his wife didn't, and you know the story. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground, but his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now, I suppose you could add into the argument here, um, well, it still doesn't say anything about the fact that there were some people who were homosexual in the city that were honoring the Lord. But God doesn't tell us that. He judges the sin of homosexuality. He doesn't define anything more particular than that, other than to say that the city was wicked and this was the main emphasis of the city. Lot knew it, Abraham knew it, and God certainly knew it. Now, one of the main reasons for all of this is, is just what I said. It's a, this particular sin is not just a sin on its own that keeps people from eternal security. There are many other things. The rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ is what keeps us out of heaven. We're just dealing with the subject because of the context in which I opened us up with this morning. Uh, but when it comes to anything else, we all need to be careful about our Lord's, our relationship with our Lord. Now, just back into this for just a couple more minutes, the biblical history even supports the same thing about these two particular cities. Kevin DeYoung writes this, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah are synonymous with extreme sinfulness. You can see it in Isaiah, and he's got the chapter references here. Isaiah 1, verses 9 through 10. Don't try to write all these down. I'm just going to read them quickly. Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 16, the divine judgment on the sin in Deuteronomy 29, Isaiah 13, Jeremiah 49, Lamentations 4, Amos 4, Zephaniah 2. In the New Testament, Jesus often references Sodom, and less frequently, he says, Gomorrah, in an effort to warn the people of impending wrath and expose their hardness of heart. Luke 10 uh, and 17, even in our day, he says the two cities are a byword for sin and judgment. And how many times have people used that kind of phraseology just in referring to the sinful nature of culture? There are some other ancient writings uh, that were not a part of the Bible. One of them, in fact, called the Testament of Naphtali, refers to Sodom and Gomorrah as a place filled with sexual fornication and homosexuality. It reads like this, but you, my children, shall not be like that in the firmament, in the earth, in the sky, and all the products of his workmanship discern the Lord who made all things so that you do not become like Sodom, which departed from the order of nature. That is really a very foundational text. Now, it's again, not a part of the canon of scripture, but God makes it very clear, or whoever wrote this made this very clear that there is a, even in the understanding of the mind of the people of the day, there was a departing of nature. You see that? There's something wrong with the 
separation from what God originally designed in creation. And, and the emphasis here is don't do that. Jude, Jesus' half-brother, when he's writing his letter to the church, this is the letter right before uh, Revelation, um, he wants to talk about the corruption that is creeping into the church due to false teachers. Listen to what he says. I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Listen, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Again, nowhere does Jude say, oh, here's a footnote. The people who were homosexuals or the gay community who were honoring the Lord in their life were left out. Nowhere is that ever shown to us in Scripture. The last book of the Bible, Revelation 22, we hear, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Now, just for your reference, dogs are not talking about the domesticated dogs like you think of today. In that day, dogs were anything but a loving creature to come into your home. Uh, the word was used to represent despicable people who were low lives in moral character. Isaiah 56.10 shows us that. And even Moses refers to dogs as male prostitutes in Deuteronomy 23.18 when he references that word by saying, this is not an approved method of worshiping the Lord. That's what the pagans around us do, and you are not to bring that into the things of God. The word sexual immorality refers to all people who take part in sexual activity outside of God's ordained plan for marriage between a man and a woman. And that's very clear in Scripture. So, with all that said, very simply again, nowhere from the Genesis account or these other places in Scripture, and we're going to look at some more later, that there is a just argument for the gay community to say homosexuality is given to them by God or that it is honored by him in some way, or that God made them that way. To do so, beloved, is just a huge violation of God's word, and it greatly stretch the text and miss the point. So again, we're going to look at a few more next time, but we're going to stop right here, and uh, we'll, we'll take a, a look at some other arguments next time. Again, not for the purpose of bringing judgment. We're throwing the lifeline. We're throwing the rescue rope. Come to Jesus. But again, hear me, beloved. This is just the subject we're talking about right now. All souls are in threat of eternal damnation who don't follow what the Lord has said. There is a right way to live and a wrong way. Just like night is different from day, man is different from woman, and all we just went through, there's a distinction between those who live righteously and those who don't. Our job is not to judge or condemn. Our job is to open the truth so that they hear it and will come to the truth and be rescued for eternity. Okay, well, let's pray. Father, to those of us who are living eternally, 
your word makes very clear sense to us. We read it for what it is. We don't manipulate it. We don't offer some kind of excuse for it. Um, We take it in its entirety. We understand certainly that some things have changed. Uh, As I mentioned last week, there are cultural things that have changed, but what has not changed is the morality of your word, the fabric of your word that teaches us how to be moral people in front of you. That transcends throughout time from Old to New Testament and on into eternity. And Lord, clearly, according to this subject, what you have designed is just what we've said today. Now, Lord, uh, this may not be an issue for many people listening to this, uh, but it is a growing and very alarming thing in our culture. And so, Lord, uh, we want to be holy people. We acknowledge before anybody that as your children, we have no hope in eternity because of the devastation that sin has created in our souls. We're the first ones to say, Lord, we need you. We are just like this. This would be our lives and worse than even the worst of sinners. That's what Paul said of himself. Even in his righteousness, he thought of himself as the worst of all sinners. And every true believer understands that. We know of the ugliness of our hearts in many, many, many subjects. Lord, I pray that for those listening out there and those here today, whoever may hear this, will understand that you love the sinner, that you hate the sin. You must judge the sin. Help them to know, Lord, their soul is redeemable and you came to set them free from the judgment of sin, or the judgment that will come upon sin. Lord, open the hearts of the blind, Lord. May they see the truth. And Lord, may we be careful to walk in a way in everything that we do uh, carefully, with a forgiving heart, with a compassionate heart, with a non-judgmental heart, but yet holding diligently to your word. And we thank you and we praise you and we mostly, Lord, love you because you first loved us. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.